Thank you for choosing this podcast for the BJSM community. I'm Daniel Friedman, and today I'm delighted to be speaking with Dr. Zoe Harcomb about what's happening in the world of nutrition. Zoe has a PhD in public health nutrition, she speaks at conferences around the world, is an author of many best-selling books, and writes a blog that has a massive following and continues to grow in popularity by the week. Zoe, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Swiss Re and the BMJ recently co-hosted a meeting in Zurich called Food for Thought that brought together the world's leading nutritional researchers, clinicians, and policymakers to help make sense of the current state of knowledge. Zoe, you were part of a panelist discussion addressing a very important question that I'd like to start by asking you today. What evidence can we trust in the world of nutrition? That was one of the most interesting parts of our panel discussion. I was involved in a panel discussion with the dietary fat people. So I was with Gary Taubes, Dr. Asim Malhotra and Walter Willett. So it was a very lively panel. And the points that I made, I guess, were a little bit controversial in that I said we can't trust epidemiology and it will be useful to explore that in more detail in a second. It's extraordinarily difficult in the world of nutrition to even trust RCTs. And the reason for that is that we can never change just one thing. There is not one single food that is only one dietary fat or one complete protein or one amino acid. We just cannot change a single thing in the world of nutrition for an RCT. So the simplest thing that we can change, and this has been a feature of the trials, particularly in the area of my expertise, dietary fat, you can swap one fat out for another and that could largely leave protein, carbohydrates and other foods unchanged. But the minute you change one oil for another, one fat for another, you've changed saturated fat, you've changed monounsaturated fat, you've changed polyunsaturated fat, you've changed all the chain lengths in the structure of that food, you have changed fat-soluble vitamins, you've changed the essential fatty acids, you have changed so many things. So if you observe a difference between what happened in the control and what happened in the intervention, for example, you can't say exactly what happened. During the discussion, you mentioned that there's a lot of contradictory information in the nutritional world at the moment. You know, one minute eggs are good for us, the next minute they are bad for us. What does all of this contradiction do for the public's perception of what's going on? It's confusing to the public. And I think the studies that most often come out, which is the point that I'd like to explore further from the opening question, is in essence why we can't trust epidemiology. Because it's the epidemiological studies that are coming out on a fortnightly, weekly basis saying exactly what you've just said. One minute coffee is good for us, next minute coffee is bad for us. Red meat is always under attack. Whole grains are always being promoted. So I want to give four reasons why we can't trust epidemiology. And I'm going to use a real example through this, one that I was reviewing very recently, which is a classic systematic review and meta-analysis, one that has been regularly cited from 2016, the own study called Whole Grain Consumption and Risk of Cardiovascular Disease, Cancer and All-Cause and Core-Specific Mortality. It was a systematic review and a dose-response meta-analysis of prospective studies. And the four problems that we have generally with epidemiology, number one is that epidemiology can only report association 
not causation. So as soon as we have an epidemiological study, we should turn to the Bradford Hill criteria, of which there are nine, and see if they would be then applicable. But the 1965 Bradford Hill criteria started off by saying, look at the strength of the association. And that should be at least double before you need to go and look at the other criteria. So for example, smoking and lung cancer has an association factor of somewhere between nine and 10. You're nine to 10 times more likely to develop lung cancer if you're a smoker. That's way more than double. I can't recall ever seeing anything close to double in all the outputs from population studies that I've been looking at in detail every Monday for the past 10 years. If the strength test were reached, you'd then need to look at things like um, the plausible mechanism. Is it consistent? Is it repeatable? And so on. So, for example, uh, one of the claims from that own 2016 study was that for coronary heart disease, fatal or non-fatal, the relative risk taking non-consumers of whole grains versus people consuming 90 grams or more a day. So that was the dose response that they looked at. They reported that as 0.81 uh, with a confidence interval of 0.75 to 0.87. That's a relative risk of 19%. That's nowhere near double, which then brings us on to the second issue with epidemiological studies. And that is that they always report relative risk. They don't report the absolute risk. And when you look at the absolute risk, the numbers are tiny. So these studies grab the media headlines at newspapers across the globe from Australia, the US, UK, right across the world. They love stories on food. They sell newspapers. And the headlines will be, you have a 19% lower risk of coronary heart disease if you have three portions of whole grains a day. Now, a couple of people that I know BGSM has worked with, and I um, consider uh, colleagues as well as friends, Dr. Malcolm Kendrick, Dr. Asim Malhotra, have asked colleagues what they think that number actually means. And the most common answer that they get is, for every 100 non-whole grain people who get coronary heart disease, only 81 who consume the three portions of whole grains will get coronary heart disease. And that's wrong. Because we need to look at the cases per people studied. And in this particular paper, that was 7,068 cases among 316,000 people, which works out at an incident rate of 2.2%. However, population studies are long. And the seven studies, only seven studies used for this finding, were an average of 14 years long. That means that the instant rate per year comes down to 0.16. That's 16 people per 10,000. If you then look at the absolute risk comparing the baseline group not consuming the whole grains versus the others, you're looking at a difference of 147 in 100,000 people versus 175 per 100,000 people. So suddenly you're looking at a difference possibly for 28 people in 100,000, not 19 people in 100. And that's if it's causal and we can't say that it is. So the third point, what I actually think is going on with a lot of these epidemiological studies is that there's a lifestyle confounder. So my hypothesis for an observed association between whole grain consumption and any health marker is that whole grain consumption is a marker of health. It's not a maker 
of a healthy lifestyle. What kind of person is consuming whole grains, granary bread, muesli, and so on? The seven studies used to report that finding adjusted for the things that we would expect, like age, BMI, smoking, alcohol. One of them didn't even adjust for gender. Only three of them adjusted for education, which might actually iron out part of that healthy lifestyle confounder. But they don't adjust for the rest of the diet. And it's a particular diet that is consumed by people who would choose granary bread over white bread and margarine. So I once joked that people who consume whole grains regularly, which the dietary guidelines for Americans tell us is fewer than 5% of the American population, they don't smoke, they don't drink, they're affluent, they do yoga, they're slim, they shop at Whole Foods, they eat at restaurants, not takeaways, they've got children who do horse riding and ballet. The whole grain consumption is a marker, not a maker of good health. And to prove me wrong on that, these study designers would need to do a randomized control trial to go to the most deprived populations near where I live, where the people smoke and they drink and they're obese and they're sedentary and they are fourth generation unemployed, they're living on government benefits and give them 90 grams of whole grains a day and see if suddenly you change their mortality and incidence of disease. And I just don't think that we would. And the final issue that I have with epidemiological studies is that they claim to support the dietary guidelines, but they didn't precede the dietary guidelines. So the own paper concluded um, that its findings supported the guidelines. If we turn back to 1977, the US Dietary Goals publication, the famous one from the McGovern Committee, the first dietary goal was increased consumption of fruits and vegetables and whole grains. But for something to be evidence-based, it needs to be based in evidence. And that means the evidence needs to come first. Only one of 45 studies identified by Owen and his colleagues came from the last century, let alone before the dietary guidelines. There was a study by Lou that dated back to 1999. All the other studies are since 2000 and the majority have been published since the 2010 dietary guidelines. Now, I understand that dietary guidelines have been under serious attack from real food proponents, um, the low carb movement, however people want to describe it for the past few years. And I can understand trying to find retrospective evidence for the guidelines, but it will never make those guidelines evidence-based. The evidence didn't come first and it never will. Zoe, could you quickly recap those four points regarding epidemiology for our listeners? Absolutely. So number one, epidemiology can only look at association, not causation. Number two, epidemiology, the headlines scream numbers, but they are relative risk, not absolute risk. When we look at the absolute risk, it's tiny. Number three, there's a lifestyle confounder. When we're looking at people who consume, for example, the most common, uh, commonly quoted foods in these studies, whole grains, fruits and vegetables, they are healthy people to start with. The healthy people eat whole grains. It's not that whole grains will make unhealthy people healthy. And finally, they're being used to justify the dietary guidelines, but they are coming out at the moment. They did not precede the introduction of the dietary guidelines, which was back in 1977 in the US and 1983 in the UK. The closing speakers at the Food for Thought conference tried to find some agreement on dietary fat guidelines. Dr. Fiona Godley, the editor-in-chief of the BMJ, concluded the conference by stating that the evidence regarding saturated fat is now looking pretty good. 
but that the guidance hasn't shifted, that there doesn't seem to have been an enormous admission of fault from the scientific community that we got it so wrong. What did we get so wrong? She actually used the expression mea culpa. There's, there's been no uh, big mea culpa from the academic community, and I think she's quite right. So what did we get wrong? We got the dietary fat guidelines wrong, and we got them wrong at the time they were introduced, which was with the 1977 McGovern Committee in the US, and they were then embedded in the 1980 dietary guidelines for Americans. And the UK followed suit by changing guidelines in 1983, and those were embedded in the 1984 Committee on Medical Aspects of Nutrition, the famous COMA report. So this is my core turf. My PhD was an examination of the evidence base for the two dietary fat guidelines. One, that there should be no more than 30% of total energy intake from fat. And secondly, that there should be no more than 10% of total energy from saturated fat. So my PhD was a methodology of systematic review and meta-analysis, which is generally regarded to be the best evidence available. And it was in four parts. So first of all, and perhaps the most novel part of the PhD was to go back and examine the evidence at the time the guidelines were introduced, because that had not been done. So part one was to look at the randomized controlled trial evidence at the time the guidelines were introduced. Part two was to then look at the epidemiological evidence at the time the guidelines were introduced. You can start to see the pattern already. Part three was looking at the RCT evidence available today. And today for me was 2015, 2016. My PhD was awarded in March 2016. And then part four to look at the epidemiological evidence also available as of 2016. And the summary paper is the best one to read. And thanks to the BDSM, it's available on OpenView. If you search my name and dietary fat guidelines have no evidence base, where next for public health nutritional advice? I think you just need to start that phrase and the paper will come up and it's on OpenView. So what did we get wrong? The evidence showed that there was no RCT evidence for introducing either guideline. And the key findings from arguably the most important paper, the RCT evidence at the time, because of course RCT evidence is more powerful than epidemiological evidence. So the key findings were one, that there were no differences in coronary heart disease mortality or all-cause mortality between the intervention groups pooled and the control groups pooled in meta-analysis. Second really interesting point was that reductions in cholesterol levels were significantly higher in the intervention groups, but this did not result in significant differences in coronary heart disease or all-cause mortality. Arguably, the cholesterol diet heart hypothesis was undermined uh, significantly, if not overhauled by this one paper. Third very interesting finding was that government dietary fat recommendations had not been tested in any trial prior to being introduced. So when you look at the six studies that form part of that paper, and they'll be very well known to people, that's the Rose, Corn and Olive Oil, the Research Committee Low-Fat Diet, MRC Soybean Oil, the LA Veterans Study, the Oslo Diet Heart Study, the Sydney Diet Heart Study, the recommendations, 30% total fat, 10% saturated fat, had not been tested by any of those studies at the time the guidelines were introduced. 
None of those six studies recommended dietary guidelines. In fact, a number, three out of the six, cautioned about the potential harm from the intervention. Rose was seriously concerned about vegetable oil. Woodhill, Sydney was concerned about vegetable oil. And the research committee, low-fat diet, famously the last sentence is, a low-fat diet has no place in the treatment of myocardial infarction. And I think the finding that grabbed the media headlines, because it did go um, a bit nuts, this one in February 2015, was that dietary recommendations were introduced for 220 million US citizens and 56 million UK citizens by 1983 in the absence of any supporting evidence from RCTs. And in implementing all of those guidelines, only two and a half thousand men had been studied, no women whatsoever, and all of those men were sick. They had all had prior heart disease. So we changed the guidelines for millions of people having studied no women and no healthy men. And you look back and wonder how we actually managed to do that. Um, Very quickly on the epidemiology at the time, because that's also very interesting, there were also six studies uh, from the epidemiology side. Only one of these, the very well-known seven countries study, suggested an association between saturated fat and deaths from heart disease, coronary heart disease. None of the six studies, not even the seven country study, found anything against total fat. So there simply was no debate about total fat back in the late 70s, 1980s. And this one study that found something for saturated fat was given predominance over the other five studies that found nothing. And there were a couple of things wrong with the seven country study. One, it said that there was no association with heart disease and activity, smoking or weight, three risk factors that we are now confident are implicated in heart disease. So we trusted it to be right on dietary fat when it was so wrong on the other risk factors. And also it's an inter-country study. So the same country study in effect was trying to claim that if you take heart disease deaths in Japan and compare them with the US, they're due to one type of fat in the diet, saturated fat, not differences in geography or lifestyle or gross domestic product or climate or politics or community or lifestyle, war, national diet. I mean, it, it, it seems absurd that we can try to say that one particular fat is responsible for a health marker when we have so many differences between the other countries. So that's a summary of the evidence at the time upon which our dietary guidelines were based and they have changed very little since that date. Given our misunderstanding or perhaps misinterpretation of fat and its effects on health, What are some facts about fat that you think everybody needs to know? I think we could achieve far greater consensus if if we had some more nutritional knowledge about fat. So one of the things that I say at conferences is facts about fat. Number one, we must consume fat. We have demonized fat for so long, you would almost think that we could manage without fat. Well, we would die pretty quickly without consuming fat. The word essential in nutrition means something that we must consume. There are two essential fats, the omega-3 and omega-6, four fat-soluble vitamins. We must consume fat and those vitamins and essential fats are of course found in foods that contain fat. Second factoid that I find very interesting is that every single food that contains fat contains all three natural fats, saturated, monounsaturated and 
polyunsaturated. We cannot consume unsaturated fat without saturated or vice versa. And yet you will see some government advice which makes you think that they think that that is actually possible. You get the impression that they would like us to completely avoid saturated fat when that is nutritionally impossible. That second fact then also establishes that saturated fat is no more synonymous with animal foods than unsaturated fat is synonymous with plant foods. All the foods that contain fat contain all three fats. So coconut oil, for example, is entirely vegan, but it is the most saturated product, saturated fat rich product of any food on the planet. Which brings us really nicely to my third favorite fact about fat, and that is that dairy is the only food group that contains more saturated and unsa than unsaturated fat. So when you look at food groups, again, there's confusion on food groups. The US MyPlate, uh, I think, quite inexplicably defines food groups as fruit, vegetables, grains, protein, and dairy. Protein is not a food group. It's a macronutrient found in everything other than sucrose and pure fats. So I think the food groups that we need to qualify to explain this dairy point, uh, food groups for me would include meat, fish, eggs, dairy, vegetables separate to fruit, fruit, nuts and seeds, legumes, which are beans, pulses, etc., and grains. And that would make nine food groups. And the only one of those food groups for which the fat is predominantly saturated is dairy. Meat, fish, eggs, nuts, seeds, even lard, all have more unsaturated than saturated fat. Can we focus on red meat for a second? Aren't we always told that red meat is full of saturated fat? <laughs> we are indeed. But of course, red meat contains more unsaturated than saturated fat because of the facts about fat that we have just covered. And that's not saying saturated is bad and unsaturated is good. That is just stating a nutritional fact. Um, so fish, for example, as we might expect, contains more unsaturated than saturated fat. That might be less of a surprise. But I have a postcard that I give away at conferences showing the total unsaturated fat for different foods. And I put on the postcard steak, eggs, lard, mackerel, oily fish, almonds, olive oil. And a couple of fun points that come out from that is that the mackerel shown has twice the total fat and one and a half times the saturated fat of the red meat steak shown. And yet public health advisors will tell us to eat oily fish and avoid red meat in the name of the dietary fat guidelines, total and saturated fat. Then olive oil, for example, has seven times the saturated fat as the sirloin steak shown. This is all per 100 grams of product. And people might counter argue, but we wouldn't consume 100 grams of olive oil. No, but one tablespoon of olive oil can have more saturated fat than a 100 gram pork chop. So we can make a mockery of our dietary guidelines using nutritional facts, which is why I want nutritional facts to be better known and better understood by the general population, but particularly by our public health advisors who are disseminating illogical information when you know something about food. In a 2017 editorial published in the BJSM, Dr. Asim Malhotra wrote that saturated fat does not clog the arteries and cause quite a bit of commotion. Based on your own work and the best available evidence today, what is the relationship between the consumption of saturated fats and the risk of cardiovascular disease and events? 
So the final paper from my PhD, the one that's on OpenView at BGSM, reported outcomes from my meta-analyses, but also other meta-analyses to put my findings in context. And there are some splendid meta-analyses on this topic. So you've got Skiaf and Miller, 2009, Siri Torino, 2010, Mozafarian, 2010. You've got the Cochrane First Review Hooper, 2011, Chowdhury and colleagues, 2014, Schwing, Shackle and Hoffman, 2014, my own papers from 2015, and of course the Hooper updated Cochrane review, which was actually updated because of my February 2015 paper, which did amuse me somewhat. I managed to prompt a, uh, an entire new Cochrane review, that was in 2015. And when I put together all the findings from all of those meta-analyses, 35 out of 39 findings were non-significant. And that is an important finding in itself. And that is something that I said in my opening to that panel at the Food for Thought conference. I said we need to trust non-findings and we need to report non-findings far more than we currently do because non-findings tell us things that we don't need to worry about. So if we go to the four out of 39 findings that were significant, not forgetting how many weren't, you've got the Chowdhury paper that found against trans fats. I don't think anybody would disagree with that. The Mozafarian 2000 paper had included it. It found against um, it found that we should be substituting out saturated fat for polyunsaturated fat in the name of coronary heart disease. But Mozafarian included the non-randomized, non-controlled Finnish mental hospital study, which the other papers didn't because it's not an RCT. And um, Mosafarin and colleagues omitted two studies that were unfavorable to unsaturated fats, which are the Woodhill Sydney study and the Rose Cornwall study. I was actually part of a paper headed up by Dr. Ufi Ravenskoff in 2014 that criticized the Mosafarin paper for this. None of the other papers did that, which is why they didn't repeat those findings. So we come down then to the Cochrane reviews. So we've got Hooper 2011, Hooper 2015. And it's important, again, to note that those two papers found nothing. This is either for reduction in saturated fat or replacing saturated fat with unsaturated fat or carbohydrates or anything else that they looked at. They found nothing for total mortality or CVD mortality or myocardial infarctions or non-fatal myocardial infarctions or stroke or CHD mortality or CHD events. They had one finding in both of the papers for CVD events, and that is the only thing remaining upon which people are trying to continue to damn saturated fat. So as a researcher would do, this is part of my PhD, you need to understand why the Hooper meta-analysis found something that all the other meta-analyses didn't. And Hooper and her team included four very small studies, only 650 people in total, not included in any of the other meta-analyses, which were not studies of heart disease. They were studies of diabetes, skin cancer, hypercholesterolemia, and glucose intolerance, respectively. And Hooper obtained the CVD event information from the authors. So the findings have not been peer-reviewed and were not available to the other researchers. Uh, another important point to note is that there was no study of healthy people of both genders in either of those uh, Cochrane reviews. So the one primary 
uh, RCT available, which did cover both genders, um, was not included in those reviews. That would be the Connery, uh, Minnesota Connery study. So the one significant finding of small benefit for just CVD events lacked generalizability, notwithstanding that the data came from non-peer-reviewed articles. The final nail in the Hooper coffin is that when you take that single CVD finding and test it, and Hooper does this in the extensive paper, I can give people the reference if they need it. If you look for the table that studies where saturated fat was actually reduced, as opposed to studies simply having the aim to reduce saturated fat, the finding, that one finding was no longer statistically significant. So we can conclude that there is no robust evidence against total fat or saturated fat. And because of the facts about fat, I suggest that it would make no sense for there to be so in that we can't avoid saturated fat while consuming the healthy foods that we need to consume so that we survive and thrive as human beings. The U.S. Departments of Agriculture and Health and Human Services are currently asking for public comments on topics and supporting scientific questions to inform the development of the 2020 to 2025 dietary guidelines for Americans. Do you have any comments for them? I do, and I did. I submitted my comments to them over the summer, and the BJSM is currently publishing a peer-reviewed version of my response. And my key points were, one, I included the facts about fat because I think nutritional ignorance is complicating the demonization of fat and saturated fat. I included the findings from the RCT evidence then at the time they were introduced and up to date. Similarly, the evidence for epidemiology then and up to date. I included the findings from other meta-analyses to show that my findings are consistent with the body of research, all the things that I've explained in this podcast. And then I included a proposed way forward. And to me, there is a really simple way forward because if you look at the dietary guidelines for Americans and you look at how they document the sources of saturated fat in the American diet, pizza, desserts, candy, potato chips, pasta, tortillas, burritos and tacos account for 33% of saturated fat consumed in the diets of Americans aged two and older. 9% come from sausages, frankfurters, bacon, ribs, what I would call processed meat. 13% come from essentially the takeaway dishes a further 25% in all other food categories, which when you look at the definition, you would predominantly put it into the processed food categories. When you look at the natural foods listed in the intake of Americans, so you look at cheese, milk, butter, nuts and seeds, they account for approximately 21% of saturated fat intake. So we could have strong agreement among health professionals if the public health message were revised to advise citizens to eat real natural food and not processed food then we would be steering people away from saturated fat. But I would suggest it's not the fact that we're steering them away from saturated fat, but the fact that we're steering them away from processed food. That is where I think the health benefit would come from. It doesn't make sense to me when we've evolved to eat foods available in the natural environment. It does not make sense to me to demonize those foods when essentially their issue is that they're processed, not because of any natural fats that they 
might contain just doesn't seem logical to advise populations away from carcass meat real meat as opposed to processed meat dairy eggs nuts and seeds in the name of saturated fat when the modern processed foods cookies cakes pizzas desserts ready meals etc they're much more sensibly related to modern illness so can we agree that the enemy is processed food and not real natural healthy fats Zoe, do you think it is even possible to create a universal dietary guideline for an entire country? Yes, I do. And I think the simplest dietary guideline that we should have for every country in the world is just three words. Rip up every other document and just issue a three-word message, which is eat real food. And that real food will vary for each population. It will be what is indigenous to that country, what is natural for that country to eat, which might be herring in Scandinavia. It might be yams in parts of the Caribbean. But it will be the natural food for that population. That is the first dietary principle the second dietary principle within that for me would be then choose that real food for the nutrients that it provides. So bananas might be an indigenous food in a particular country, but that country that has bananas would likely have fish. And you should choose fish more often than bananas because in a nutrition comparison, fish will be bananas. But I think we can issue global dietary guidelines based on a simple real food message. Zoe, I think that's a great place to end it. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a delight. If our listeners would like to find out more about you or your work, where should they go? Uh, my website is simply my name, zoeharkham.com. I tweet also, again, just my name, at uh, zoeharkham.com. Great. Thank you again. You've been listening to a BJSM podcast with Dr. Zoe Harkham. You can follow BJSM and stay up to date via the usual social media channels or download the BJSM app where you can find more podcasts, our latest articles and other content. As always, we hope you have a physically active day.